0: You're listening to the podcast from The Stage, the world's oldest and best theatre publication. Thestage.co.uk. Good afternoon, ladies
1: and gentlemen. Uh, My name's Tom Digden. For purposes of a podcast, I'm just going to repeat a little bit of what has already been said. Um, Welcome Mark Thomas here, who's got an award for being brilliant in sustained fashion at The Fringe for uh, a long time. Uh, He was. Here, I know, in 92, because you were nominated for a period Award, then I believe. Yeah, I yes. um, In the comedy section, but um, well, we are here to recognise his performance in the theatre section. Um, I'm sorry to be projecting quite so much, but um, we do not have any application. I hope it's not too loud for you listening on the podcast later on. Um, and I just loved seeing your show here uh, today, Mark. Um, the, this week, Are you, how do you feel being here in the Travers um, for three weeks? What, do, do you enjoy it? Is, it, is it home from home, or is it a strange place
0: for you? The Travers, great. This is brilliant. I'm really grateful for the Travers for having it because um, you know, because I started out as a stand-up, and stand-up is still has this sort of slight feel of being the bastard child. Of performance uh, and it's not quite legit and it's not quite proper um, and so to, it was lovely to, for, uh, to come up and uh, for the Trav to take the first show they took here which was Bravo Figaro for them to take a chance and give me a, a go which was very nice of them so I love coming here um, it's nice to come along I always have a mixture of sort of like um, of uh, kind of coming home but also being nervous at the same time because there are some just amazing performers here and some brilliant writers and some great directors who you're in the same building with and actually I always sort of feel a mixture slightly nervous that you have to raise your game uh, you know it's like when you're working with people and you just think the people around you are just so brilliant that you've, you've, you've got to sort of step up a bit so I, I love coming here um, but yeah it does, it does make you feel you have to get on your toes Is that a reason
1: to come back?
0: Yes you. Yeah it keep, well it keeps you kind of Yes, it does. It is a very good reason to come back. Yeah.
1: Um, I, I suppose many people would think of you as a comedian, um, as, uh, as a, as a, as a agit, um, of, of, of protest. Mm-hmm. You've been on the telly, you're famous author, that sort of thing. Um, I was very interested to hear that you, you from the play, that you started out uh, acting as a, as a, a young thing, that, that, sort of, that you went off and did.
0: Yeah, I went to Bretton Hall uh, Drama School, which some of you might know. Which was, it, was a, it was a brilliant sort of mix of education and arts. And it was this Capability Brown landscape building in the middle of Yorkshire. Uh, and it was just great. And I, I went there because my mate, who I was in a punk band with, he, um, he came back to school and said, I've got into drama school. And I was like, bloody hell, I'm better than him. I want to go. <laughs> so this is completely true. Uh, I, I, I applied to go to Bretton Hall because my bass player got in. <laughs> and that's why it happened, and I'm really glad I did, um, because I think everyone should have the everyone should have the right to discover a part of themselves, to discover. Uh, about themselves and to educate themselves and to spend time face painting and trying to have sex with other people and take drugs and and people should do it without encumbering debt, they should be able to do it without encumbering debt and that's one of the things we've got to be really firm about, actually the arts is a brilliant thing Uh, and we can go through all the the economic arguments if you want at some other point but the point is is we all have a right to discover the capabilities and powers and, and creativity that we have within us and that's why art schools and that's why drama schools are really important because because they make up, they create us, they allow us to discover ourselves and to be creative. And, those, and we should be able to do it without just sort of like having nine bloody grand a year to cough up. And that's a really important thing.
1: Uh, the, to come out of theater, so you, you used you used to have to ask them to stand up, right? I heard that you, your first joke was told on the, the steps of your dad's To your dance, to your dance and repeat it off the table, um, are very well, they the cats.
0: Do you want me to tell it? What it was, was the first gag. My dad was a builder who was uh, left school with no educational qualifications whatsoever and did really well for himself and discovered a love of opera, which, is, uh, which was the subject of the first shot I Bravo with brother, Figaro, and about how when he started to get ill, he, he got a degenerative illness and we started to lose him. And so I started to listen to opera. I hated opera. Right? Uh, my dad used to take it on the building site um, in cassettes. And used to play it on the on the bill. So I'm like sixteen, I'm a punk rocker. And my dad is singing Rossini's Barbara of Seville badly, really badly. I actually stay in the show, my dad sung with the gusto of a Welsh male voice choir and the precision of the carpet bombing of Cambodia. <laughs> which is which is pretty much true. Um, and and so for me to, to what it was it was reaching out, yeah, to, to to kind of to to uh, to, to find him when, which is what, what that show was about but my dad was quite he was quite a bruiser and um, but the one place you had Sanctuary was in comedy if you like Steptoe and Son uh, and stuff like that and Dave Allen who we, and Dave Allen by the way just a mate Dave Allen was one of the greatest most inspirational performers out there and I've automatically done yeah. this. I've automatically chopped my finger off as I've started talking about him. Because he had, for those of you who don't know, he'd lost a finger, oh, part of his finger. And he was forever flicking off imaginary fagash ash from his trousers as he performs. But he had this amazing... He was just brilliant. He, he would... Um, he had this really subversive knack with him. And I remember once, I, was, I think I was about nine, maybe ten years old, Dave Allen did a sketch in which he... Uh, he plays a part of a Dutch reformist minister and he walks into a church in South Africa and there's a black guy on his knees and Dave Allen goes, what are you doing by it? And the black guy goes, I'm just cleaning. He goes, oh, thank God I thought you were praying with us for a minute. Which <laughs> was this really sort of like incredible lays open the relationships that exist there and the hypocrisy within the church. I remember saying to my dad, what's that about? My dad explaining apartheid on the back of a Dave Allen sketch, which is a really amazing thing. Um, And so comedy had a real sort of status in our house. Uh, And it was the one place where everyone gathered in the living room and all the normal rules, the draconian sort of paternalistic rules were were just released and you could laugh. And there was a, I don't know if some of you, there's a South London phrase which is a totter. It's a word and it means you collect scrap. And um, my dad always used to refer refer to himself as a totter because he was forever sort of picking up bits and pieces on the building site and putting them in his pocket for the scrap box. And in fact, that was one of our tasks that we had to do every year. And and we used to go and take, this was one of the great trips, was to go and take the scrap to the scrap metal merchants every six months. I later found out it was roughly about the time the tax bills were due that we were going out to the scrap metal merchants. But um, there was a phrase called a totter. and If you're a totter, you collected scrap metal and they'd just introduced the VAT, and I was watching, um, it was Step and Son, and my dad was called outside by a bloke, uh, my dad was a local builder, so everyone would just come to the doorstep. And a guy called my dad out and wanted to talk to my dad. And so my dad was doing a bit of business on the doorstep, and missing Step and Son, in which they told a gag. And I was a kid, and I just remember walking outside, and t- in my pyjamas, and telling the gag, I said, dad, I must repeat, I said, Dad, what, when are they going to visit us? And he said, What's you on about? about? I said, When are they going to visit us? The Prime Minister goes, What? He said, Isn't that what it's about? VAT, visiting all totters, which was <laughs> a step toe and some gag. And my dad laughed, and the bloke who was visiting my dad laughed. And I remember the bloke going, You've got a right one there, Colin. And my dad held my hand, and I was able to stay on the doorstep with him. And it was like, That's the power of a gag. <laughs> yeah. Comedy is powerful.
1: Theatre is. <laughs> <laughs> equally powerful. Mm.
0: Um, and, and tell us, and actually, I, I, you know, I, I, I take issue with you there. I take issue with you because one of the reasons I've ended up doing the stuff that I do is because, actually, comedy, if you, 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 you sometimes limit yourself to the references and the, the reference points that you have. What comedy is about, you know, essentially, a, comedy is, a gag is a story. Like, you have a beginning, a middle, and then you get the wrong ending, and that's how it works. But the point being is you often work with with presumptions and ideas and images which are commonplace that become the shorthand for the gag. And when you use those commonplace images and shorthand, then you reinforce them. So students, if you think students, well, what do they do? They steal traffic cones and they eat pot noodles and they stay in bed all the time. And that becomes the the, the kind of like stereotype and the shorthand of the gag. And so actually it can be incredibly limiting. And the interesting thing about going, okay, I'm not going to have anything to do with, I used to do a, a topical comedy show where we just used to write gags um, in fact this is, we used to set ourselves the challenge that the audience would set topics that we should write gags about in the interval and then we would come out and tell these gags to the audience who would judge how good they were and they judged in all sorts of ways but it was and, and, and actually more often than not you would get stories about you know, the royal family and just say why on earth do I want to talk about them? Yeah, why do I want to become an echo chamber for a press release that's gone to you know, The Sun or The News or whatever? I don't want to do that. That's, that's, that's nuts. So actually, I think the thing is, is that theatre actually offers you a chance to escape those shorthands and those expectations. And to actually, for me, to find a voice that is your own and, and is free of those things. You're a great fan of Brecht. Yes, yeah, yeah. I, my first Brecht show I saw when I was 16. And I'd gone to laugh at my mate who was in it. <laughs> and, and that's why I'd gone. And it was a Caucasian short circle. And I just, what well, I, I still remember is, you know, the, the, the being amazed that you could change your mind over something. You could go into the theatre thinking one thing and come out thinking something else. And, I'm, I'm a, and that's always kind of influenced what I do. And I'm big, you know, when, when I hear people say, oh, theatre can't change anything I just get furious because actually what we work with are the most basic blocks of change someone comes into a room they become part of a community with an audience and they move they go from one emotion to another emotion comedy is the most basic one you start not laughing then you laugh that is a change you know if we don't believe in change then we shouldn't be doing it oh yeah I did I did I, I, did, I was quite a fanboy. <laughs> it was, it's quite a, I feel slightly kind of like gauche going I was a big fanboy of Bertolt Brecht it does sort of sound sort of, sort of, sort of slightly awful but I did when the Berlin Wall came down I, um, I, I went over to Berlin and it was before reunification and um, I really wanted to go and see Bertolt Brecht's I wanted to go and see the Berliner Ensemble and I wanted to go and see the theatre and I wanted to go and see um, where he lived where he worked and I went around to where he worked and and it's a museum and we got there early, and uh, with this, next door there's a graveyard, and it's for sort of communist dignitaries and whatnot. not. Um, we wandered round, me and my girlfriend then, we wandered round, and there was, um, Bertolt Brecht and Helen Weigel are buried next door. And as we wandered round, we suddenly see on the gravestones, on their gravestones, in white paint, Juden Rouse, and a swastika. And I was kind of like, absolutely in set, a sense, and we get into the, to this tour, for his house in the museum. And the tour guide goes, what languages have we got? Who's here? Have you got any questions? And I just said, yeah, I've got a question. I want to know. And you know we get very, very sort of like, sort of furious and just kind of righteous, but angry and just that those, all those things come together. I've got a question. I want to know why on earth are you allowing that filth to remain on the gravestone outside? And she said, I'm very glad you've asked because the family have asked that we keep it up there for the time being to remind people what we are challenged with. And I thought, isn't that just amazing that Bertolt Brecht, even when he's dead, is still sort of providing this sort of challenge to us in the way that we perceive things. And that's really incredible. Subsequently, it's come down, and rightly so, I think. One of the strands
1: of your piece, recently here, The Red Set, here, is about stories. Yeah. Um, And I personally have a great love of stories, and I think that theatre is all about the stories and so forth. do you want to
0: talk a bit about the importance of stories? Should we discuss stories, or uh, the way that we tell them. We can do.
1: I'd be very happy to. Because I mean, <laughs> the versatile breadth is. Well, breadth is. Choose a point, and then
0: Well, I think that, that yeah, or well, the, the interesting thing is uh, when you coach a theatre, you, you you see a story. It needs to be a story. I want the story that I haven't necessarily heard before, or if I have heard it, I want to hear it from a different voice. Right. I went to see. Um, Dear Home Office, and I don't know if any of you have seen it. It's this amazing thing, have you seen it at all? It's great, it's this group of, of unaccompanied minors who are seeking asylum in this country who have done a drama project. And they're here at the Fringe. And it's bloody brilliant, it's, I mean, you know, it's a drama project done by a group of people with basically zero training, but the authenticity of it and the proximity of them to the story that you're hearing is absolutely remarkable. And it's really, and, and I'd recommend people go and see it before, I don't know when this goes out, or I'd, I'd recommend all of you if you're not booked up to other things. Um, and I find, it, well, I, I find it really fascinating, the idea that the stories that are told, they, they form so much, not just that sense of who we are and where we're from, but also a sense of where we're going to, what our intentions are. And so stories become, narratives become really important, and they don't just become important Within theatre has a special importance for them but they become really important in terms of national narratives or community narratives and you know we've only got to look at the EU referendum to see the power of a narrative you know when, when Michael Gove stands there and says we're bored with experts and actually what people want is they want to be part of a narrative which they can believe in regardless of whether it's true or not and so the narratives that were being put forward were, were quite remarkable, especially by a group of liars. You know, this is, Boris Johnson is a proven liar. He was sacked from the Times for lying about his reports from, the, from, from Europe. He was sacked by uh, Redmond... Um, what's his name? Not Redmond. Uh, Howard. Howard sacked him from the Tory party for lying. You know, so you have proven liars getting up there, telling stories, and people believed them. But it's the way they
1: tell the stories. And the way that we tell stories and yeah. we tell stories We've both been to see White Rabbit, Red Rabbit. Yes. I um, actually performed it. Um, Did you? You, you? you went back to see an actor. I saw
0: it twice, to see yeah. An
1: actor and a comedian,
0: and- For people who don't know, it's a, it's a show that's performed by a performer that's never read the script before. So they get up and they get the script there and then they, they, they do it and they read it out. And it's. um, I was so. I saw an actor do it and then I saw a. a, 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 a a comic to it. I just wanted to see how two different types of people would handle it, and I love the idea that stories can to be told in such a variety of different ways.
1: And I, I think that your piece here brings the brings the audience into your story as well. I mean, the audience is on stage. Yeah. Um The audience, as, as Natasha said earlier, the audience sing at the end. That's well, I love the fact. That we, well, we I, love the fact,
0: well I love the fact that you can involve the audience all the time. Actually, uh, well, you should be anyway because otherwise they're asleep but but, you know I I, I love the fact that we should be bringing people in to to become part of a community that's what we are we form a community right and it's really really important and sometimes if people are sort of arsey in shows I will very very pointedly go okay if people have a phone if a phone goes off I'm a bastard on this because I will not have it and if someone's phone goes off I go you just turn your phone off just turn your phone off now because what you've said is I've come here I've paid my ticket money I'll do what I like and it doesn't matter, I'm I'm more important than everyone else in the community. It doesn't matter if I spoil or interrupt the event. What I'm doing is I've paid my money, I do what I like. And we have a name for that behaviour, and that behaviour is called conservatism. Now, (laughs) you know, if you want to behave like a Tory, you're at the wrong gig. So, and it's important that actually we are all together, and we we do come together as communities. And theatre is one of those great places. If you love singing, right, I adore singing, And I love singing loudly in public, and it doesn't matter that I can't. It doesn't matter. I enjoy doing it. I hate football, so I have to go to church to do it, right? Those are your two options. If you love singing in groups, basically you get football and churches, and I love churches, to go and sing. I have no faith whatsoever, but I get very upset when they change the words to carols. But the point is, all those things are about communities' activity, to come together as a community. It doesn't matter about the faith aspect. What matters is that we come together uh, to mark a calendar, to be together, to mark change, to mark being together and seeing the changes in each other. Um, so all those little things sort of influence my thoughts on how we should come together as a community in the theatre. Um, and I adore that fact that, we can, that people join in. People join in anyway, and stand-up is actually probably one of the only art forms where someone can heckle and change the course of an evening. Right? If someone shouts Hamlet, we've heard it. Right?
1: <laughs> Hamlet's going to
0: carry on. Do you know what I mean? That will not change one jot of what happens next on stage. Um, but I love that, that, that interaction the ability for an audience to change things. And I, and I, I always, that's, for me that's sort of come out of Brecht and it's come out of my feelings about lack of faith. And it's come out of. Um, well, I'm a big fan of, of people like Joseph Boyes and the Fluxus art movement, uh, which is all about participation. And lots of my shows have loads of bits where people join in. So one show I did was called the Manifesto, where people had to submit ideas on how to change the world. So we'd go around before the show started, sort of an hour before, and people had to write their policies to change the world. It could be anything they wanted, uh, and then the all the messages, all the notes would come in and I'd spend 15 minutes frantically trying to read them all and then sort out an order that they would go in Uh, and then we'd get up on stage and discuss the audience's policies with the audience and the aim is you want them to, to start to talk to each other in the room to feel confident about adding to people's ideas or challenging those ideas and at the end of the night we vote and the winning policy joins the manifesto, we formed a uh, we, we created a whole manifesto. I'll tell you some of the policies we had. We had, well, um because they've, ra- they've ranged from the Sublime to the Serious to the Ridiculous. Um, we had, my favorite one was from Hull, which voted, the audience in Hull voted, it should be legal for us to take fashion designers outside and bash them into the shape they think we're in. <laughs> <laughs> which is a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful policy. Um, in, uh, we, we'd get to renationalise the railways. That would always come up. We'd always have a discussion about renationalising railways. Uh, we, my, another one came from Bristol, which was to burn David Cameron in a wicker man to ensure a good harvest. That was, <laughs> uh, But we'd also have discussions about max, a maximum wage. What is a, what is a maximum wage? Should we actually introduce a maximum wage? Can we morally introduce it? How would it work? What would it do? How would it, and I actually used to go and interview people. So we'd get things voted through, and then I used to go and interview. Like I went and interviewed a Marxist accountant about the maximum wage and how it would work and then you'd come back and you'd add it into the show and so we'd always try to look at new ideas and it was ways of people sharing ideas and some nights I'd go, what about this one this is a really good idea and they just vote against it and, and because i said to people I would try and campaign to make some of the policies actually happen um, the audience would sometimes play with that so in Canterbury they voted that we should publish MPs' expenses every two months in a local paper, and the electorate should approve it before it was given. The money was handed over. It's quite a nice idea. The local paper got in contact, said we'd like to try and do this, which was quite funny. We started to investigate it. I was hugely relieved because the policy that nearly won was that we should disguise leopards as foxes to fuck up the gentry. <laughs> And you could almost see the audience going, "How is he going to do this one?"
1: <laughs>
0: the,
1: the whole idea of bringing the world onto the stage mm. is something that is central to your, to your performance. It seems to me. I mean, you go off and walk down down um, down the, 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 the line between Israel and Palestine. Yeah. You know, you you, you go into Parliament Square and hold protest. Yes. Go and you go off looking for um, where the story came from for the red shed. Yeah, bring all
0: these things into the. Yeah. Well, the idea is that, that I go off and do things, and then things happen, and we actually create the narrative in reality. So, and then we just bring it back in. And quite often that means that we're working on a story, and we get to a certain point, and we're in rehearsal, and then we go, What happens next? You have to go and do something next, is what I. That's the thing. Um, and I love that. I love the fact that actually that, that the work exists for real outside and is part of something that we just we bring in, and, and the work exists outside of theatre. That's really exciting to me. That actually it doesn't just stay within it.
1: Okay, I think Most actors um, come along and they, they interpret the script, they take the script and they, and they remember it and they br- bring a brilliant sense of what it is and reinterpret it and they their own self to it. Yours seems not. I mean, it's, a, it's a different skill that you, you write and create and interact and re on the stage. And
0: and improvise because I, I mean, can't remember the script. <laughs> no, 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 I mean, that's part no, of the reason. Is, I couldn't you know, actually... No, 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 no. I have never... My technician's sitting in the corner there and mm-hmm. she'll tell you she's worked with us for about five years, six years, and I've never been, been able to remember a script properly. She just watches my face when she changes the lights. <laughs> <laughs> she's brilliant. She's the person you should be thanking. <laughs> so we, we, we
1: are quite... That, um protest mm. belongs on the
0: stage. I mean, yeah, well, of course it does. Yeah, well, actually, absolutely. The, the idea that we should be doing something that's, that challenges people's ideas and preconceptions, which automatically has a, an element of protest within it. Um, I, I did do a show once, which was called the uh, Serious Organised um, Crime and Police Act. And what it was, I found out that the, um, they brought in a law that meant you had to get permission from the police to protest in and around Parliament Square, so it's like a kilometre radius and and what counted as a protest could be one person with a banner or one person with a trade union badge if you were standing still. If you were moving then that was a procession and technically you'd need another load of permissions um, and so what we did was we just said okay if that's the law let's play with it and so I just started to go along to the police station and in Charing Cross, and said, "I'd like to apply for permission to demonstrate." There was this beautiful lad who was, who was a, called PC Paul McAnally who was a Scottish police officer working out at Charing Cross. I remember handing him the first form, and he picked it up and goes, "You wish to have a demonstration to defend surrealism?"
1: <laughs>
0: I said, "Yeah, I can have a demonstration about anything I like." He said, "You can indeed." I just didn't even you know Surrealism was under attack.
1: <laughs>
0: and at that point I thought, okay, we've got a show, we can play, we can play, we can play. And so we did, we spent a year, me and my mate spent a year just organising different protests in and around and exploring the law. And um, we found out because basically I, two things happened, one was I applied for a demonstration and um, he, he said, yeah, you can have that. And I said, what if I cross the road? He said, no, 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 you'll need a separate permission. So I said, right, so if I move from place to place, I need other permissions. He said, yes. And then just went, oh, God. <laughs> and so I went in the, the, about a week later with 21 permissions to, on the same day, 21 demonstrations on different things. And me and my mates made all these banners and we put them in a wheelie bin and my mates came and were my demonstration assistants. And so they, we'd take this wheelie bin all around this place having a five-minute demonstration outside these different places, which the police had to give us permission for. And, um, and so we'd do really stupid things sometimes we'd be demonstra- like demonstrating outside Westminster Abbey with God is Dead Shut the Abbey, right? and we had, uh, 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 to, to not, we had one on Hungerford Bridge demanding more trolls and, and, and so we just sort of play and what was great was afterwards the Guinness Book of Records got in contact and said we'd like to make you world record holder for demonstrations and I said "Well, okay, what do I have to do? they said come and have your photograph taken, I said what else? they said you have to give us your methodology I said, why do you want my methodology? They said, well, because other people, when we put it in the book of records, will want to beat your record. I was like, okay, game on. <laughs> and actually, a couple of years later, I was invited to a school in uh, Hertfordshire where their local amnesty group had beaten my record, and I got to give them the award. And it was bloody great. And the idea that this stuff just filters out and just carries on... Is so, and what we also did, we also organised a thing called the Mass Loan demonstration. Because if one person with one banner needs permission, we thought, what if lots of one people with one banner assemble at the same time, we would have to have loads of permission. So we had like three, four hundred people turn up and apply for permission, which the police then have to provide all the paperwork for. And then we go, and we're all in Parliament Square running around with, you know, stop putting bits in cheese, we want laces in boots, you know, all that kind of stuff. (laughs) And and what happened was, was, uh, because I got to know the police really, really well, and one of them was very sweet, and he still sends me a Christmas card, this is true, um, and he comes to the gigs, which is very nice. But what happened was we found out when uh, the Nelson Mandela statue was unveiled, it was unveiled by Gordon Brown and Ken Livingstone, and all sorts of people, and Nelson Mandela. And I went along to the police and said, what I want to do is I want to make a speech by the Nelson Mandela statue. Do I need permission? And I showed them the copy of the speech, and they said, yes, you will, that is a political speech, that is a protest, you will need permission. I said, that is the speech that was made when they unveiled the Mandela statue. Did anyone apply for permission to have a demonstration? And the cop went, no, they didn't. So I got onto these lawyers and said, can we challenge you know, Gordon Brown and Ken Luther? And, and what can we do? Can we bring a legal action? And the lawyer was like, we're going to challenge the Metropolitan Police. I said, why not the politicians? He said, I'm not being known as the lawyer who put Nelson Mandela back in jail.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: which is fair enough. Which is fair enough. And we, cha- we launched a challenge against the, the police for not, for not actually prosecuting Gordon Brown and Ken Livingston for having an illegal demonstration. And they started to change the law. So it was brilliant. I was, you know, I'm a real big believer that when, you know, when somebody can change things, we can actually change things. You know, we can change the law.
1: And the point is it's entertaining at the centre. Yeah,
0: And join in and people join loads of people would come on and demonstrate and would, would send me photographs as well. And in, and people who couldn't demonstrate, we formed a, a demonstration company. So for five quid they could send us a fiver. We would apply to the police on their behalf but all the paperwork legally had to go to them. So the police had to deal with all this paperwork going all across the country, and then we would do a proxy demonstration. So we used to do hundreds of single demonstrations. just We'd have these printed-up banners, just putting them up, taking photographs, and it would all be sort of like, oh, I love hog rose, well, I want clouds that look beige, you know, all that kind of <laughs> stuff. Which is actually hugely relevant
1: at the moment. I mean, I'd to see a letter called Dancer, in which the... Um, the audience end up on stage dancing while the two dancers, um, one of whom is, is disabled, um, sort of watch, and the audience become the performance, and the, the, the dancers become the watchers and the audience. Um, and as, as we talked about uh, White Rabbit, Red Rabbit, um, Blank, uh, his, his new play, and at one point in that uh, it's not giving it away too much, the performer. What, what's any performer becomes the audience and the audience become the performers? And, and this whole idea that we are all performers... Um, well, we look,
0: not just that we're performers, but actually that we are active participants in our own lives and destinies. And that this is not just in the theatre, it just spreads out all, all over it. And we have a unique chance to take people through journeys, through stories, and to explain and play. Would anybody like
1: to ask a, a pithy question so we just carry on discussing.
0: It would be quite nice if from the back of the room someone shouts, Who's your fucking barber? That would be. <laughs> 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 so you've been coming back to the fringe <laughs> all this time. <laughs>
1: <laughs> what is it about Edinburgh and the fringe that makes you want to come back here? I mean, you perform in Parliament Square, you perform all around the place, you take your red shirt around. Is the red shirt going to the red shirt?
0: yeah the Red Shed um, in, for those of you who haven't seen it and you know, uh, it, basically I get picked on stage and they have to lift up masks which are photographs of the real people that the story is based upon these are my friends and people I know and uh, the Red Shed is a 47 foot long labour club in Wakefield it's a wooden shed it celebrates 50 years uh, in September and um, it was a place I first started doing performances in public and me and my mates would write shows and afternoons perform in the evening and uh, I've always gone back there and felt a very keen affinity with the place. And uh, so we are going to perform the Red Shed, in the Red Shed, it sit, seats 66 people. But what we're going to do is we're going to get all the people who are in the show to play themselves. So they'll be sitting at the table, lifting the masks up. and Which means the show's now going to be two hours long with heckling. <laughs> <laughs> and also people sitting, you know, sitting there just going, I never said that. <laughs> <laughs> lots of that. And then and
1: the Yeah, oh yes.
0: What I love about actually, what I love about coming up to it it does. I don't know how other performers in the room feel about this, but it certainly gives you an annual calendar. It means you have to get your ass into gear and create something, and you have a clock that ticks each year. That means you have to actually get into gear and arrange it. You have to get everything into place and start work. And I love that aspect that it gives us a calendar to come up uh, to arrange our work around. I think that's really important. Um, I also love the fact, I adore this place, I love the fact that you can come and see everything here. And I I set myself this thing where every year I have to see a minimum of 40 shows each year, Um, regardless of what I'm doing, I have to get out there and see stuff. And I adore that, I adore that you can go and see some of the finest comics working, you can go and see stuff like um, Counting Sheep, which I thought was just a magnificent show and really exciting or us then which is really amazing and it's brilliant to be able to go and see things like that and be inspired by it and see things that you wouldn't necessarily see uh, back home in London. Um, I love the fact that we could go and see things. That, I, used go, I used to go to medical student reviews um, when I first came up here just because they were so awful and it was just sort of a little light relief and um, can I tell this story? Yes. Is it once I went to this went I went this way to this is how it starts, the show starts, the lights go down and you just hear The lights come up, a bloke is standing astride a toilet with a toilet brush in his arm, in the air and suddenly the rest of the cast that are on, the, on stage lift up their brushes and go flush, Oh! Dum, 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 dum. it was so bad, it was just like, ah oh, man, this is genius. But God bless them for getting up and having a go, do you know what I mean? But I mean it was absolutely the most ridiculously absurdly crap thing I think I've ever seen. But it was the part of me felt really pleased that they were doing it, that they were giving it a go. And indeed, actually when you go and look at stuff like you know Dear Home Office, which is these people have got virtually no training in performance whatsoever, but they're getting up and telling a story in a really unique way. And that's exactly what The Fringe should be about. It should be about enabling all sorts of people to come here and give it a go. I mean, you just mentioned a
1: couple there. Anything, any other hot tips that people should see in the
0: last weekend? Uh, James Acaster, who's my favourite comic at the moment, who is just genius, and Bridget Christie, who's amazing. Um, I also, what else, I love that. Lots of the stuff I saw was at the international festival this year, and it's been really interesting. That, that for the first time, I spent quite a lot of time at the international festival, and it's been really, in my mind, it's been really successful. Is so uh, it
1: getting
0: old, or is it getting better? Yeah, I'd possibly both. Just, I like a nice, comfy seat. Um, <laughs> also, I went, it was like, I went to see Yusuf Dour at the Usher Hall, and it was just miraculously good, because you know what the Usher Hall's like? You get those people who come, oh, we come every year. We come every year. There's a marvellous programme. It's absolutely delightful. And this year, they have world music. World music. <laughs> so, uh, and of course, it's just a disaster. Everyone charges with the front, arms in the air, and all these theatres good lord! And it was just miraculous. So that was amazing. And stuff like, you know, uh, Meow Meow, Performing songs of the Weimar Republic it was just brilliant. Alan Cummings was amazing. Um, I'm off to see Richard III on Sunday, which is going to be quite. Cool. Yeah, yeah, I've got my ticket. Will you tell? by <laughs> himself. We did that once. What happened was, let me tell you this story, because I used to work with the Kurdish Human Rights Project, and I did a show about, called the Elisou Dam, which was about a three-year campaign that I was involved in, in trying to stop the dam being built in the Kurdish community in Turkey. And um, we worked with Kurdish groups and we worked with environmental groups. And basically the British government was going to employ Balfour Beatty to, or the underwriting Balfour Beatty's efforts and there were seven companies, seven export credit guarantee departments. There's a torturing state involved. And I told the story of what of our campaign, which started by us going to the, the Kurdish region and asking people, what would you like us to do? And they were great. They just said, attack the finance. So that was our remit. We came back and attacked. So we spent three years doing this. And I did a tour about it called um, Dam Busters, it was about it, and it was in 2001. And two-thirds of the way through the show, the deal collapsed, and so we won. And I claim that morally, that we won that. Yeah. It was us that won it. And the show became a victory yelp that then went on to attack the next series of dams that were being built. Um, now, why did I start this story? What did we start on? Ticket-touting. Ticket-touting. ticket Yeah, yeah, so what happened was... This is what happened, and what was good? We, we the Kurdish human rights folk, just said. We've got Noam Chomsky coming over and we've booked St Paul's Cathedral. And I was like, really? They said, yeah, 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 what do we do? How do we sell this stuff? We'd have known nothing about it. And I said, well, I'll do it. And me and my agent at the time said, well, we'll do it. What we need to do is you need to make tickets available to all the activists first. So you put it out in the little anarchist free sheets and you say, we'll accept checks and postal orders, And you don't put it anywhere else. So the people who are really involved in community work and community activity, they get first go at this. They deserve this stuff. This is for them. So they should have... First Got it. Then we put it into the new statesman as the next stage of our kind of planning, uh, and then we said, "Oh, you can pay by credit card." And then we put it in Ticketmaster in the, the capitalist hell. And um, when we put it there, and we sold out St Paul's Cathedral for Noam Chomsky. And as we were walking up the steps, me and my agent, we were walking up the steps, going, "Fuck, we sold out." We heard this bloke just go, "Buy or sell your Chomskys. Buy or sell your." <laughs> we got it tell!
1: We got it tell! <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much for being really brilliant. Well, thank you very much.
0: Thank you very much for this because what it is, is this means that I'm legit. (laughs) (laughs) And I thank you for that.
1: (laughs) You're listening to the podcast From the Stage, the world's oldest and best theatre publication. Thestage.co.uk